1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: hi i'm john wilson welcome to these three a series in which I talk to artists, musicians, writers, directors, actors, photographers, all sorts of creative people, in fact, about their artistic lives by focusing on three key works, one that they made themselves, that they're particularly proud of, one by somebody else that they wish they'd made, and one that they're working on right
3: now. I'm Lucy Prebble. I'm going to tell you about the play I wrote, the play I wish I'd written, and the play I'm writing now.
2: Lucy Prebble is one of the smartest young playwrights around. She made her name with the television drama Secret Diary of a Cool Girl starring Billy Piper, Uh, then her 2009 stage play Enron about the rise and criminal fall of a huge American corporation built on bad debt and dodgy hedge funds was a theatrical sensation, uh, moving from Chichester to the Royal Court to the West End and then to Broadway. Uh, Lucy was executive producer on one of my favourite television series of last year, Succession, about an ageing media baron played by Brian Cox and his three children jockeying for position as he prepares to hand over control of his media empire. And next up at the Old Vic will be a new play called A Very Expensive Poison about Russian assassins on British streets. Uh, more about that shortly. Lucy, welcome to these three. Um, before we hear about your choices, just um, explain where we are. This is an industrial estate in South London, <laughs> yes. a former factory building. Where are you write?
3: We're in my office, which is a small room that I rent in a former factory in an industrial estate in near Bermondsey in South East London. It took me a long time to get an office out of home because I didn't feel I could justify it. And I always felt a little bit guilty that it seemed like an unnecessary expense. Like, why don't you just sit at home and write? You've got a space, you live somewhere, you know, you can do that. And I'm really annoyed I left it as long as I did because it's made a massive difference to my productivity. (laughs)
2: Lovely view from your window there (laughs) as well. So you don't really get easily distracted by that view. Very sort of post-industrial, light industrial maybe. But the fact that it's a form of factory building, mm. I mean, that's, that's useful, isn't it? That keeps the productivity high. Do you
3: know what? That's really right. Yeah, I've always been quite sceptical and suspicious of the sort of fawning over artistry that can happen and creativity particularly maybe it's self-deluding of me but I really like the idea of it being like a craft Mm. like something you go into a place of work and you do and you know not every day it's good and not every day it works but i think there's something really healthy about approaching it as a craft rather than as like a an art that's going to be visited upon you and then you'll be inspired and i find all i find all that a little indulgent really? and unhelpful for me yeah are you just
2: being self-deprecating because you are an artist do you not i said
3: i don't know if it's self-deprecating so much as i don't think it's useful right. and actually all like i'm quite utilitarian like i'm quite my i'm quite practical and i'm interested in what's useful and what's useful for me is the idea that i can come somewhere that. does feel you know warm and safe and how you know I feel like I can be creative within the space but that also I'm going to do a job of work I can't remember who said it but the water doesn't run unless the tap's turned on you know so the idea of like you know get in a situation where you feel like you're working and then the and then the the sort of more magical elements might just happen rather than sort of sitting around expecting them to visit you like a muse you know
2: when did you start writing then
3: I don't really remember not writing Hmm. I write television I write Theatre, I write video games, I write journalism occasionally, prose. I was just always writing and scrawling short stories, bad poetry. Particularly when I was really young, I used to do a thing where I would record things off the TV, but like with a tape recorder because didn't have a TV in my room or anything like do record and play on a tape recorder and like just record programs i really loved and then listen to them in my bedroom on a cassette and then i would write like nowadays you'd call it fan fiction but i would write like episodes of tv shows that i loved or even short stories based on tv shows that i loved in like a in like a notebook and Which shows? Oh, it's so embarrassing like Star Trek a yeah. lot of Star Trek stuff and also weirdly like that was a time where there used to be a lot of sort of American sitcoms that they'd buy in over. It was things on like the Golden Girls and mm. stuff like that and Cheers, actually. And I remember being weirdly into them. And there was something about a group of people who were working together or were or living together or in a bar or a pub together. And they all sort of had their roles and their relationships. There was something like I think it felt like a home. I remember thinking about that, about Star Trek as well, that everyone on the bridge of the Enterprise, they were like a family. Mm. And the and same is true of sudden like Cheers, and the same is true of something like The Golden Girls. And I just sort of wanted to write my way into that situation.
2: I That's think. really interesting. Also the fact that you were recording the television programme and then taking it to your bedroom. Yeah. But it's the words that were important rather than the visuals.
3: I'm very verbal, yeah. I mean, I try and write more visually, and I, as I write more for screen, I do that. But there's no doubt that... Maybe it was just because not having, you know, we didn't have, like, a TV in bedrooms or anything, so... But also, I was a big reader. I loved books. So words have always sort of been my first port of call, yeah.
2: Did you always think, I'm going to be a writer? Was it sort of a foregone conclusion?
3: Absolutely not, no. I mean, it didn't even... It didn't even occur to me that was a job or a profession for a very long time because I didn't come from a family that worked in the arts or in the creative industries at all. My mum was in education most of my life, some IT, and my dad was in management and in IT as well. It wasn't a back- it wasn't a background where I thought those things were possible. It wasn't until probably I left university and... I did quite a lot of temping work in lots of different industries. And what I would do is I would I would look at The Guardian every Monday, media, media section. Jobs, yeah, yeah. And then and one of the media jobs that I applied for was like a secretarial position at the National Theatre. And it was quite competitive because it was exactly when Nick Heitner was coming in. And I think there was a lot of focus on the building. And I was so thrilled when I got it because it just felt it felt very bridge of the enterprise to be in the office at the National Theatre. <laughs> it all
2: goes back to Star Trek. Oh, totally
3: does. And I loved and I, and I love that. But I do remember, like every time they would come and dictate a letter or something, I would be in such a panic because I just couldn't <laughs> type as fast as they thought that I could. And it was, oh, it was so stressful. That And then, you know, starting to work in a the theatre just changed everything for me. Everyone from the person who does the wigs to the music to the producer to the press to the marketing to the playwright, you know, and I sort of suddenly that changed a lot for me. I was going to go on to law school and then I dropped out. So
2: I was going to say, so when you're at university, law was the option then or that was the aim?
3: Well, the aim was what I did is I studied English literature at Sheffield. But what I decided was I had already applied to go to law school afterwards and do a law conversion course because what I wanted to be was a criminal barrister. And to be honest, there are still some times where I think that would be quite a good thing to do. You know, like, like it might be more useful to the world. And I, I still sometimes think about going back and doing law for that. But
2: More useful than writing plays that can <laughs> yes. shine a spotlight on some of the big issues, as you have done.
3: That's where the overlap is a bit in what my interests are, because yeah. it brings us back to the choices I'm making, I suppose. Because I find it very difficult to write a play, particularly a play. If I don't feel that it's got the potential to do something important, which is you know the opposite of self-deprecating, there's a sort of narcissism to that or or an arrogance to it. Well, it's
2: setting the bar very high. It's setting the
3: bar very high. Yeah, there's something I feel about theatre which does in my mind which does that. It's tricky to get people to go to the theatre, and for for relatively good reason, which Mm. is it's, it's generally expensive. You have to leave your house. It's not always the most comfortable experience physically for some people. And some of it is, doesn't necessarily deliver on that promise. Um, I.e., you can have some people who have bad experiences with theatre and it's very difficult to get them to come back, yeah. which isn't true with a lot of other art forms. You know, you don't give up on TV because you watch a bad series.
2: Yeah, the amount of bad films I've seen, oh, I exactly. mean, but you still watch another film.
3: That's right. So theatre has a real struggle on its hand in that regard. So I feel a responsibility to not just churn stuff out for that art form. Where, and it's not, that's not to say I would do that for any other art form, but like if I was, if I was writing for a video game, or you know, I'd think differently about it.
2: Well, that's interesting because you haven't written that many plays, have you? I for mean, that
3: one of, For that reason, because I mean, you're
2: choosing carefully.
3: That's one way of putting it. Also, I just I feel like I have to care about it so much and believe that it's important for me to justify doing it as theatre. I also feel that theatre is good at very particular things and, when, and the things that it's good at to do with a group of people actually actively collecting together, to do with live experience. And I think what theatre does brilliantly is non-naturalism you know, it can't compete with film and television in, in, in terms of presenting reality as real. What it does brilliantly is metaphor and sometimes absurdism and things like that. Uh, so and
2: you've done all of those things, as we will hear. Just before I ask you about the play I wrote, are you suggesting you might go back to law?
3: <laughs> yeah, I never say never on it. Sometimes when I'm, you know, and we'll, and we'll get there when we talk about the play that I'm writing, but sometimes when I'm looking at various world events, there, there there are occasions where I think, oh, I would be fascinated to actually get into that rather than just be writing about it.
2: Okay, let's start with the play I wrote, uh, and I'm delighted that you chose Enron. It's 10 years ago now, isn't it? It's 10th anniversary. Ten, ten, yeah, 10 Ron. Yeah. 10 <laughs> I mean, and talk about big subjects. This is, uh, it, what was it? It was a $60 billion, I think it was $60 billion corporation, wasn't mm-hmm. it? That fell apart in about 10, 12 days or less than a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was built on lots of dodgy loans, hedge funds, all sorts of financial shenanigans going on. Um, and collapsed spectacularly and ended up with the bosses of the corporation going to jail. Jeffrey Skilling in particular, Skilling he, he was, was the jailed, CEO, was
3: Yeah, he? So, so Jeffrey Skilling was the CEO of Enron and he was sentenced to 24 years, which was the longest and I think still is one of the longest sentences for corporate crime in history. In fact, he was, I think he was released really recently, last few months, um, he, uh, Skilling came out. Ah. Ken Lay actually died before he served any time. He was the chairman. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was 10 years since that show which was an extraordinary sort of roller coaster for me. It was only really my second play professionally mm. and it was a big subject to take on and it was a big show. And looking back now, it seems quite crazily ambitious that I did that, but at the time I wasn't aware of that at all. There's only a limited number of things that I sort of want to write about in theatre particularly and often they take the form of just things that I've never seen on stage before. I'd never really seen business on stage before, certainly not in any contemporary way. Mm. And I thought that was strange because if you walk around London, you, you, you sort of exist in the Western world, every other building seems to be, you know, a law firm or a hedge fund firm or a consultancy, particularly in central London, that you sort of just accept as being part of our architectural landscape and background and no one ever really talks about what goes on in them and what they do and what the mechanism for that whole industry is. And I just remember thinking, well, then that's really interesting to write about that. And it, just the story of N1 felt to me like a modern tragedy. And I, as soon as I could think of it like that, I thought, well, there's a theatrical shape for a tragedy. I know what that feels like, you know, whether it's Greek or Shakespearean or whatever.
2: Well, there is a Greek and or Shakespearean aspect to the play that you wrote. And you mm. have Geoffrey Skilling at the centre of it. And there is... A Macbeth like quality, I think, isn't there, to him? And that kind of quest for power, I mean, pushed on by a, a deputy.
3: Andy Fastow, who was Jeffrey Skilling's CFO. It's very interesting to look at that play now, actually, in regards to the shadow of the Trump presidency. And the fact that I suspect that, as far as Trump's concerned, if we get to a point where he does face proper criminal charges of any kind it'll come from alan Weiselberg. it'll come from the cfo who has already we know turned and when that cf very few companies can survive a cfo you know sort of showing the guts of the organization mm. i mean very few particular kind of companies the trump organization to me seems very vulnerable to that i would suggest but anyway it's, it's so it's interesting to look at that now because that's exactly what happened with Enron, Andy Fastow, who was obsessed with Jeffrey Skilling, adored him, really idolised him. Um,
2: he was Lady Macbeth in a way.
3: Yeah, and, and they had, yeah, they were very close, and then he eventually completely turned on him and testified against him, which was one of the reasons that Skilling got such a long sentence.
2: When yeah. the corporation itself collapsed, I mean, it was about eight years before you wrote, the play that's right so were you aware of it at the time when it was on the news were you fascinated by the collapse of this corporation and is that where the seed was sown do you think
3: yeah definitely i was i i remember it happening and being in the news and in the papers and at the time you see it felt quite unusual and strange obviously since then with after the collapse of lehman brothers and the 2009 credit crunch it's it doesn't so much but back then in about 2001 when it, did, when it fell, there were, report, there were reports about how this company, this massive company had collapsed. And even that as an image, I remember being fascinated by it. goes back to talking about theatre as metaphor. Mm. In business, we use a lot of metaphor as well, stuff that actually you want to go, wait, 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 what does that mean? What does it mean that a company collapses? And essentially it means bankruptcy, it means the firing of all. it means the non-existence of that company, the dissolution of it. But it's not a thing. It's not a building that's coming down. It's a concept, and it's that sort of thing that get, I get very interested in because then I start thinking, well, then what has actually been lost? Right. What are we, what are we mourning? And what is, what is, what is the tragedy? And I just remember reading about that and thinking, there's something poetic about this, something metaphorical about it. And then when I read about the testimony that Fastow was giving in court against Jeffrey Skilling, his sort of former best friend and mentor, I thought, well, that's the human angle. That's the emotional centre, because you can't just write theoretical pieces about, you know, the metaphors of companies collapsing. But I thought that's people. And then, then, then I thought, oh, you're on to something if you get both those things.
2: But it sounds in theory, if people haven't seen Enron, this... Could sound kind of pretty dry yeah. and academic uh, and very, very complicated. Um, I remember at the time reading it, Ron, before I saw it. Oh, yeah. Um, and in fact, we spoke before it was it hit the stage. I think it was still about to kind of maybe in in preview. And I remember reading the play and seeing this note in the script about raptors prowling around the stage. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was a note to yourself. And of course, that's what happened. So the raptors, these dinosaurs, is a, the kind of the, the voracious aspect, and that became the sort of the metaphor, the, the central metaphor. Of it stage. was one
3: of the central metaphors, and it was yeah, it was it was a success, successful one like that came out of the idea of, well, how do you theatricalise the financial instruments that get designed within business, which, you know, seem sort of complicated and dry. The last thing I wanted to do was have just men in suits in a room talking about them. That's not what I'm interested in. And when I was sort of like, sort of going through all of Fastow's for research, all of his record keeping, he would refer to a lot of the financial instruments that he set up to hide debt. So to hide how much debt the company was in yeah. he would design quite complicated financial instruments that meant that when he looked at the books you couldn't see, right? And those financial instruments he would call things like Raptor 1, Raptor 2, also even like references to Star Wars in it like st- references to Star Warship. So very boyish very 1990s sort of boyish geekish interests and I remember looking at that thinking that's perfect like what we need is that that energy because that's what that that's what that energy was it was a bunch of sort of men going right we're gonna we're gonna do this we're gonna get them we're gonna pretend that we're in Star Wars you know so anyway so there was references to Star Wars in it but the Raptors were a reference to Jurassic Park really another 90s famous Spielberg film um, and they sort of consumed money on stage. And so they were a central part of being able to illustrate on stage like how the company was working just just by being theatrically metaphorical about it, which you couldn't do in any other art form, I don't think. You couldn't really... It wouldn't work in film and it wouldn't work in a novel, really. You have to... On stage, people kind of, kind of got it. And then, you, you know, you, yeah, and then it's fun and it's exciting, which is sort of what it felt like to work for the company at the time.
2: Well, it was fun to write.
3: Well, no, it's never fun to write. No. <laughs> but um, for but me, that's
2: interesting, though, isn't it? So much of the play, I guess, had to be invented and imagined, even though after Enron collapsed, you know, millions of words written in newspapers and the reports and all sorts of things. And there was a film as well. There was that documentary, The Smartest, Smartest Guys that's in the
3: that's room. A, That That's a great documentary.
2: Yeah, but you were taking it onto a different level because it was sort of metaphorical and symbolic and very theatrical. Yeah. But a lot of the conversations that were happening, you know, those conversations between the smartest guys in the room, that room was locked most of the time. So you were having to kind of imagine what was going on.
3: Yeah, and, and try and open that door. And that's the thing I'm most interested always in writing about is what's behind the locked door. I mean, you know, and that I'm sure there's lots of psychological reasons for that. But I'm, I, I really love the idea of taking something that we we just haven't looked at yet and examining it or the elephant in the room that's just not discussed. And for a while, finance was that before 2009, before 2008. You know, it was just like, don't look over here, guys. It's fine. We're just getting on with stuff. We're just making a lot of money getting on with stuff. Don't look at us. We're fine. And then you sort of see what's actually been happening. And, and, and what was happening was just a massive amount of bonuses being awarded to people making a fortune off other people's debt. And it eventually collapsed. So so that was, yeah, that was very much the spirit of everyone and. But the one thing I would love to say about The Raptors and, and stuff like that, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing similar levels of theatricality in the play I'm writing at the moment, is I think there was a misconception for a long time that writing in theatre is about dialogue. So you'd see reviews and you you know it took a long time for people to recognize I would have so many people say to me "Oh right so when the designer came up or the director comes up with the idea for these dinosaurs on stage what do you think?" and I'm like "Sorry what?" Because the assumption was I the that the that, that, that writing is dialogue and everything else is something else.
2: Well I can back you up with that because I saw the <laughs> I saw the first draft of the script Well yeah, it was oh, thank there. you. That's, <laughs> kind of, no, that's kind of, but
3: it's not you know it's not I you know yeah, I I don't feel bitter about that. What I feel like is I think it's a real misconception. Mm. Writing is not dialogue. Writing, in fact, often the less dialogue there is, often the better the writing. And so I think sometimes there can be an odd misunderstanding of stuff that happens on stage is written, sure. even when it's not people talking in words.
2: Were you surprised at the success? I mean, it went from Chichester to the Royal Court. I think there was a West End transfer, then went to Broadway. And mm. rave reviews everywhere. It must have been amazing. Cause...
3: It didn't get rave reviews everywhere. It failed spectacularly on Broadway. Well, yeah. But which was a really, really... Weirdly poetic, sort of coming around of the actual story. Like it did sort of fail in America and sort of collapse in a way that was very similar to stuff that happened in the story itself. And so it was, it was, mm. it was interesting time. But yes, did it, yeah, of course I did not expect that at all. I, as with whenever I write anything, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of people, you sort of just want to get away with it almost. Like you, you feel like. Oh God! like if this, if this is okay, I'll be I'll be fine because you live in such a situation of sort of self-doubt and worry and anxiety about it that just that people like it is such an immense relief that yeah, it's a huge it's a huge surprise as well yeah
0: Hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: The play I wrote by Lucy Preble was Enron. The play you wish you had written was an obvious choice, an easy choice?
3: Actually, I I take some issue with with the phrase because I found it quite difficult to genuinely think of a play I wish I'd written because I think there's something specific about writing, which is that you can only do what you can do. And I'm sure this is maybe a bit of an obvious point, but I, my experience with actors and directors is that they have a jealousy that I, and an envy that I really understand about other people's work because actors are always go, oh, what I would have done with that part, mm-hmm. you know, or directors sort of like, oh, I would have done that so differently. But when you're a writer, honestly, when you look at a play, it's like you don't go, oh, I would have written that. Like you couldn't come anywhere close to writing someone else's play. Like you, every play, if it's any good, is just all you can do. It's from you. And so when I was honestly thinking a play I wish I'd written, I thought it's a bit like the child I wish I'd had. Like you don't meet other people's children and go, oh, I like that one. I wish I'd had that one. So I have a little bit of an issue with the concept.
2: You're taking the premise very literally. I'm sorry. i mean, it's a I'm play sorry. that you've seen Got it. that you really admire. Something, <laughs> sorry. I mean, no other play that you wish you'd written, but one oh. you really admire.
3: Yeah, I... I Oh, don't get me wrong, there's loads I'd written just for, like, that was successful, you know, like, for, for, the, for, the, for the money. But, um, yeah, so there's a play called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, which is by Stephen Adley Guirgis, an American writer. And it really changed how I thought about theatre. I didn't know massive amounts about contemporary theatre when I started writing. And I didn't really think there were plays that as a young person i would see and be thrilled by and connect to in a in a sort of contemporary meaningful emotional way
2: so you weren't going to see a lot of plays then it's not it wasn't something you did all the time no
3: no no and and if i and if i did go and see a play it was like it's probably a shakespeare with a famous person in it mm. or a musical so the first play i think i ever saw that i had that feeling about was The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, which imagines sort of a trial of Judas, the character that we sort of know from the Bible. But the whole thing happens in a world called purgatory, basically. And you have a lawyer for, you know, for the defence and lawyer for the prosecution. But the language of it, the language of it is sort of urban, New York American sort of slang African American slang often rap Mm. sort of language there
2: was some hip hop soundtrack hip hop soundtrack with it
3: it's a sort of combination of something that we normally deal with incredibly soberly and quite in a sort of puritanical way you know Old Testament New Testament religion
2: in a reverential way
3: absolutely with something that we only sort of deal with in a kind of Frivolous way, often sort of like hip hop music and stuff like that, and 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 it puts them together in 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 the way that is doesn't it is not as embarrassing as that sounds. You know, like now of course we can look at something like Hamilton, the global smash of that, and go, oh look look at this. But but actually, way before that, yep. the last days of Judas Iscariot, its soul is incredibly modern, and it's also unbelievably beautiful and vulnerable by which I mean that you can feel the author of it, the writer of it, dealing and wrestling with his own feelings of guilt, religious grace, Mm. um, as well as dealing with sort of really good funny jokes and petty sort of like broad characterisation. And it was really inspired me in terms of wanting to be right that way, by which I mean taking big subject matter, and bringing it into a world that we recognise as contemporary people going to the theatre now, particularly maybe even like younger people, who, and, and, and allowing jokes and allowing references that say, this isn't like a weird false room that we all go into and pretend we're still at school, which is how theatre would sometimes feel to me. You know, this is the same as the rest of the world. It's the same as the movies, as a gig... Has the internet, you know, it can be the same as those things. And this was the first play that actually sort of, I really got that and was like, oh, this is like me. This is somebody talking like me about this thing.
2: Did you see it? It was open at the Almeida in North London, I think probably what, 2007? I would have said something like that. So a couple of years before you wrote Enron.
3: Well, I was probably beginning to write Enron then.
2: Right, yeah. And it was really incredibly energetic. I loved it. I saw it as well at that time. And it starred as Judas Iscariot, Joseph Moore. Yeah. And he has got such an amazing face. If people know that actor... Actually, he also played... There was a key role in that series, Ripper Street. Yeah. Um, there's a nice link there, of course, because in Ripper Street, that starred Matthew McFadden.
3: Who's in Succession. Who's in Succession He's incredible.
2: Well. He is fantastic. But Joseph Moore has just this incredible sort of vulnerability. There's a sort of pain on his face of whatever he plays. I mean, something about it. But I remember that character... The way he played Judas was really, really very moving.
3: Yeah, and I rem- I remember being particularly struck by Satan as a piece of writing as well as as a performance. So Satan features in it, who was played by Dudley Henshaw. Dudley Henshaw,
2: think. yeah, Shetland guy.
3: Yeah, and but I, I the thing that struck me from a writing perspective was to have the balls to write Satan and to not make that disappointing. You know, the, 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 there's a section in the trial where Satan is sort of cross-examined by uh, the woman lawyer and he takes her to pieces as mm. she tries to cross-examine him because he's Satan and he knows all of this stuff and he can do it. And the, the writing is extraordinary. It's exquisite because it does what you want it to do. Satan is, you know, literally has the best lines, you know, and is devilish in the extreme. And yet that aching truth and pain underneath what Stephen Adagirch is writing about what the way that Satan kind of both pins her down and attacks you know her verbally but also just tells her the truth about herself and that's what hurts so incredibly it's just brilliant writing and it and it was a sort of thing that gives you permission to go you're allowed to put Satan on stage if you want you know and that and we'll come to what I'm writing at the moment, which is definitely has something of that in it. Which, which, yeah, the last days of Just got it. Really made me believe that you could do theatre that was front facing towards the world and was bold. There's a lot of theatre around that lives in a very tasteful aesthetic, and some of it is brilliant. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not challenging, you know, its right to exist, but it's not where I. Feel courage lives. I think that tastefulness and artifice, and even like even like very gentle emotional truths, are brilliant. But I don't know if they what we need. I don't know if it's at this time what I feel like is necessary. I feel like actually slightly vulgar, slightly difficult, bold, ugly truths are what is required. And I'm not saying the last the last days of Judas is none of those. It isn't, isn't ugly, certainly. But it's bold. Mm -hmm. It's saying, it's, you know, the idea of what if we put Judas Iscariot on trial? It's a risky thing to do in a stage play and in a piece of writing. And it assumes that you're going to be able to write Jesus. You're going to be able to write Satan. And he does. And it's the most beautiful thing you've ever read.
2: The Last Days of Judas Iscariot by uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis, um, the play that Lucy Preble doesn't wish she had written, <laughs> but really inspires and clearly had a big effect. And, as she has suggested there already, has a link to the play that you're writing, which is, well, another big subject, another big political drama. And this is one in which a crime is committed not by a corporation, as it was within Enron, but by a government. Tell us about A Very Expensive
0: Poison.
3: Yeah, A Very Expensive Poison is a play about the murder of Alexander Litvienko, who was killed in London in 2006, poisoned to death by a radioactive poison, polonium-210. Now, very much like Enron, which we've discussed, it takes seriously these political events, but it also has about it Uh, a big theatricality, is it's a show as well as a play. And that show is sort of about how that happened, who's responsible for that happening and why it happened. So it takes in big, you know, political ideas to do with the Russian government, but also to do with the British government at the time and how they responded to those things, which I think that the British government responded weakly to the murder of who was by then a British citizen. Alexander Litvienko was a British citizen by then and had been living here for a while. And
2: do you think our weak response was because of commercial interests and I think it was almost pressure, certainly politi- I think it was
3: almost certainly because of commercial interests, combined with a lack of interest in international relations being in any way awkward. And I think you can trace back some of Putin's overreaching to that point and the understanding and the realization that internationally actually no one was really going to mind if he interfered in another country as long as it didn't affect us economically too much or as long as it wasn't, you know, as long as it wasn't more than one ex-Sort of Russian citizen, which is what happened with Anna Lovienko. And I think you can trace that back, you know, to to, to, to what you know Putin's done since with the annexing of Crimea all the way to the interference in the American election. This
2: is the moment at which he thought, I can get away with this stuff.
3: I think so. I think... I think there was a moment where if there had been very aggressive pushback in the way that you might imagine there would have been by a British citizen killed on British soil by, you know, using a material and poison that could frankly only have come from the highest levels of the Russian government. I think if there had been more uproar about that and pushback, which at the time there was just no appetite for in the government Mm. because... Of the economic interests of Russia, you know, gas and oil, but also just particularly the amount of money flooding into the southeast of England from oligarchs in Russia and just very, you know, wealthy friends of the Kremlin, etc. Residentially, commercially, was huge, and politically, political donors also.
2: And the play that you're writing shares. Um well, the story and the title with a book by uh, Luke Harding, Guardian journalist who's investigated the whole subject. So potentially a massive cast. How do you go about stripping and how kind of tightly are you focusing on the murder of Litvinenko himself and his widow, Marina? Yeah,
3: I mean, that that, that is the frame of the play. I would even consider it a love story to some extent because it's about the fact that Marina Litvienko, his widow, who still lives in London, and who I've met, and is just an incredibly inspiring woman, and,
2: su- and supportive
3: of what you're Oh doing. yeah, absolutely. She's and she's she's wonderful. She pushed for an inquiry for years and years, you know, after Sasha, who, which was his, you know, his nickname, died, and really finished the work that he began because Litvienko wasn't, as people thought, like a former spy. Really, he was a detective, and he had. He was a uh, target because he said things true that were true about Kremlin overlap with organised crime that there was, and he said things in newspapers and he wrote about that, and that was really one of the things that got you know got a target on his head. And Marina carried on after he died, um, pushing for justice and truth in that regard um, about the about how her husband had died, and so there is a very beautiful sense of a love story interrupted, really, which is that these two people who loved each other very dearly, you know, he goes into a hospital in North London one night with stomach pains and within a few days is told, oh, no, it's not norovirus or whatever we first thought it was. You're going to die. You've been poisoned, essentially. And it took them quite a long time to work out what it was because it's an incredibly rare radioactive substance. But Marina was there the whole time with him and they sort of had to solve what happened to him in the amount of time that he had left. So that's the frame of the play. What he had to do was sort of solve his own murder before he died. And, you know, Marina was with him. And so you go all back to Moscow and then, you know, they move to London. and
2: There's Putin in it.
3: Well, that was what I was thinking of when we were talking about the last days of Jesus Iscariot. Mm. I mean... Um,
2: So, Putin's in your play?
3: I think it's, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too specific about how and why that is because how it happened, because I don't, I actually want the play to be discovered for what it is. But, and also, I also don't don't want to contribute to the sort of fetishisation of Putin, which I think actually he enjoys quite a lot. I think him and Serkov, who you know, has been his advisor for many years, who was a former theatre director, a failed theatre director, Surkov, who's kind of been responsible for so much of the performance of democracy in Russia.
2: Well, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because, I mean, there is a kind of bizarre theatricality absolutely. to, I mean, not only this story, the poisoning of Litvinenko, but that whole Russian political international machine.
3: That's absolutely right. And it, a lot of it comes from Surkov, who, as I said, was a, was a theatre director, but also, you know, really really committed with Putin to this idea of we're going to perform democracy, we're going to call it sovereign democracy and we're going to make it seem like we're having elections. And actually most people are relatively happy with that. Um you know and, and to the extent that they that he would and they would um, you know, create seeming challenges to the government. So, you know, recruit a lot of young people to sort of basically pretend to be protesting so that they mm. could just be in charge. So it seems like emotionally you've got a outlet for protest, but it's actually an arranged theatrical performance. And that's very, Russia, very Kremlin Russia at the moment, you know,
2: And just as with Enron, you had that kind of metaphorical aspect. I mean, it was very performative, very theatrical. I presume, again, it's all there in the script, on the page. So when the critics say, (laughs) Lucy Prebble's script was great, but what about the designer and the director? No, 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 I sound very defensive. I've got an
3: incredible designer, actually, who's contributing a lot.
2: But it's important, though, isn't it, that these ideas, and visually it's coming from well, from here, from this room at the moment. Where are you with the play, then? You've written how many...
3: I've drafts. done I've done quite a few drafts of it, but I, I tend to do a lot of drafts. That's like my process. So I, I, I tend to, you know, the first draft will be the most ridiculously sized play you've ever seen. And I tend to then work inwards. And that's been true of all of the things I've written, that they start off unbelievably long and cumbersome and unruly. But the weird thing about this one is I'm trying not to let go of the unruliness too much because it really suits the sort of, the sort of confusing turbulent times that we live in now that it feels like lots of things always happening at the same time and I don't want to lose that. So the play is quite unruly and, and, and does have lots of things happening at the same time and is very deliberately sometimes overwhelming um, and that's a, there's a lot of theatrical techniques being used to create that. There's also quite a lot of vaudeville in it like the assassins who were sent to murder Litvienko were almost absurdly badly prepared for their task. And, 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 you know, when you actually look into who they were, they, they also had no idea of the power of the poison that they no. were carrying. they were visiting strip clubs, weren't that's they? That's right.
2: They, they were sort of hanging out and so they were They exactly didn't right. seem to be taking their job particularly seriously.
3: Well, they weren't, you know, what they didn't realise, well, one of them really certainly didn't realise is that Kovtun, Dimitri that he was there because he was disposable, you know, so mm. he, was, he was sort of a, a drunk idiot basically who whose obsession was that he was going to be a porn star like he was absolutely obsessed with the idea he was going to be a porn star and that was his great passion and he was sort of helping his friend out on this trip to kind of like get rid of this guy But yeah, and they they rolled around Soho basically trailing this radioactive poison with them, stayed at like the best Western hotel, chucked some of it away down the loo in the bathroom because they didn't want to carry it back through security when they flew back. So they they clearly had not been properly informed about that, maybe because they didn't want them to know how dangerous it was Mm. because otherwise they wouldn't have done it, you know. But actually, when you look back at the amount of radiation that was just spread all over London, you know, from sushi restaurants to Madame Jojo's in Soho to the Best Western Hotel, you know, to the Millennium Hotel near Mayfair, which is where all these places these assassins went, it was a absolute incredible health and safety risk to the british public so but, there's an
2: absurdity to, to those characters as yes well. there's, an,
3: there's a heightened deliberate absurdity to them which does veer into the vaudevillian but i think that those choices are very very deliberate and they're about you know because that is actually how the russian government try and frame that if you think about the unfortunate poisoning of the scripels recently in mm. salisbury you know, you you get this idea of the assassins visiting Salisbury Cathedral as this comic idea. It becomes like ha ha ha, how funny that you know they go and they do this interview about how they wanted to see the spire of Salisbury Cathedral. Now that's actually a Russian tactic. It's a joke. It's it's funny. You know, well that was not, a
2: double bluff. That yeah. wasn't just a sort of bad cover. They set themselves up knowing that everybody would laugh and say exactly. how ridiculous.
3: Exactly, and that's a that's a very specific behavior. You know, there's a there's an old there's a Russian word. To do with satire called styob, S-T-Y-O-B. And what styob means is it's the act of, it's the act of pretending something's true in a jokey way when you know that your audience knows it's not true and you know they know it's not true. So it's a, it's sort of a high sort of satire, it's a performance, and you see Putin do it all the time. Mm. And people call it gaslighting, but gaslighting isn't Accurate, because in gaslighting, what you're doing is you're saying, "I'm telling you something. I'm telling you you're crazy," and but you don't think you're crazy. Stob is a really different thing, and you see Trump do this as well, which is like, I'll say something that's bullshit. I'll lie about something. You know I'm lying. I know you know I'm lying, but it's sort of funny. It's funny that we are in this room all pretending this thing I'm saying is true when we know it isn't.
2: It dissipates the kind of importance of it in a way.
3: Exactly. It completely undermines it because what you do is you sort of collaborate with your audience in an understanding of the unseriousness of things. And it's something Trump uses all the time. It's something Putin kind of pioneered. And it's something the play is trying to do as well. So what the play does, is it has these moments where characters in it will try and get the audience on side in exactly the same way. And will kind of try and go, hey, stop the play. You know, we know we're we're in a play. We know we're in a play, guys. It's a theatre. We all know that. You know, and they'll use this technique to sort of go, we all know it's a game. We all know it's a performance. And, and and that's the first step of breeding cynicism in a population, which is absolutely what you want. Ideally, if you're a dictator, you desperately want that level of cynicism because all cynicism is is obedience, you know, before the event. If you can get people cynical, they're obedient to whatever you want to do before the event. Basically, you could just, you know, they sort of go, well, there's no point. There's no point fighting for justice. There's no point calling for this public inquiry because it won't do anything. It won't achieve anything. And that's a very successful Russian disinformation tactic. And it's now becoming this, you know, something that I think Trump kind of uses a lot, which is, which is basically going from, I didn't commit a crime, I didn't commit a crime, to, well, maybe, you know, maybe I did, but it isn't a crime, to, well, I did, but who cares? Mm-hmm. And that's basically the stages you go through to achieve that level of cynicism on your population who you can eventually then go, yeah, I guess the president's a criminal, but I guess I guess we all are in a way.
2: But in the case of Litvinenko, I mean, it's a, it's a murderous masquerade in a way and, and the kind of theatricality. Did you read that in the Luke Harding book? Is that the moment where you thought there's a play here because of all of those kind of layers of artifice?
3: Yeah, exactly that. That's, it's very unusual for me to look at an idea and think this is a play. As I was saying at the very beginning, like, I think it needs to fulfil very certain criteria for me. And, yeah, when I was sent a very expensive poison, I, I got about five pages in and I was like, oh, shit, I have to do this. Like, this is really good and it's theatre. And, it's yeah, it's to do with the what I was just describing about the artifice of the agreed performance of things, which which you can apply to democracy in Russia but also to espionage in the case of the, of, of spies and working for intelligence – And love to some extent, because it is a love story as well, which is a sort of agreement between people to pretend something, even when you don't necessarily feel it, because you're committed to it. And so I thought, well, there's lots of different levels here. And also what theatre is. Theatre is an agreement for a bunch of people to go into and pretend something's happening that's not actually happening. So you couldn't get a better metaphor for what this story is.
2: And just something that you said there, you read the first five pages and thought, shit, I've got to write this. <laughs> yeah. Is that how it felt? Because it's then you're locked in, you know you have to do it. And I mean, it's interesting that you described it like that rather than, yes, great, there's a play <laughs> to me. be written here. Well,
3: that's my personality. I mean, I—I I, when I do something, I really, really throw everything into it and i'm proud of myself about that and i like that about myself but i also know there's a there's this feeling at the very beginning of something that's a combination of oh this could be wonderful and it's it's almost so precious a thing that feeling of i have a glimpse of how what this could be and i believe in it so utterly and i'm so excited by it that i at the same time have the feeling of potential loss of it not working out or not happening and so there's a, you know, probably very unhealthy but, like, combination of an incredible swelling of positive hope and, like, excitement about it with the dread of having to do it, which is really hard work. And, you know, I've, especially with theatre where, you know, there's no, there's no money in it. So mm. you just work for years and years and years trying to get something good on and then you get it on. And, and you just hope to God it's as good as you hoped it would be.
2: And how, how long have you been here in this room writing this particular play, do you think?
3: Oh. I guess I guess now maybe a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, about 18 months, yeah. And you're nearly there. Yeah, and and you're still no closer to knowing if it's any good, which is terrifying.
2: And given that you're tackling such big themes all the time and there's such a commitment to these subjects in the plays, are you, when you are finishing this one, are you already thinking about the next one? Are you looking for the next big subject or do you have to totally compartmentalise?
3: No, I mean, I, I don't. I find it quite exhausting to do that. I'm I'm just all in on the thing I'm working on at that time and I can't even th- see anything else. So... You know, and for me, like I said, theatre for me is like once every sort of five, ten years thing, something will catch fire in me and I'll go, oh God, like I said, you don't have to do it. You gotta do it. Yeah. And then, you know, in a, but in a, I mean that in, a, in actually a very sort of beautiful, positive way. So, yeah, no, I, at the moment, I can't imagine the idea of writing another play. Like, the idea seems absurd. <laughs> so,
2: you've got to finish this one in the meantime. Yes. Better let you get on with it. Thanks. Lucy, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And if you enjoyed Lucy Prebble, have a listen to the other episodes featuring the likes of Paul Weller, Hayley Atwell, Tom O'Dell, Jonathan Yeo, Kwame Kwayama, Guy Garvey, and there are many more on the way. Please do rate and review These Three, and it helps other people find the series. And subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Also, have a look at the website. We've got more information about all of the guests. There are photographs, videos, uh, previews of forthcoming episodes. We're on Twitter and Instagram, of course. These Three is produced and presented by me, John Wilson, in association with Analog Folk. Thanks for listening.